0: Good morning. This is Dr. Matthew Dunn, host of The Future of Email. My guests, plural today, two gents uh, heavily involved in the Kumo MTA project, Tom Mares and Mike Hillier. Welcome, guys. Thank Thank you. you.
1: Nice uh, nice to be here.
0: And we say MTA and 99% of the world hears like the adults in, in Charlie Brown. What's an MTA, Tom?
1: Yeah, it, it's funny if you do a, a search for it. Most of the time, you'll find out you know Metro Transit system Metro or Transit, something yeah. like you know. <laughs> it, it, it makes SEO very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a, a, a an MCA is an on premise uh, mail transfer agent. It takes mail from one place and sends it to another. And in our okay. case, it takes it from one or two places and sends it to billions of other places. And why why on
0: premise in your qualification?
1: good question. There are there are really two different ways to get mail from from its source to to inboxes. Uh, one is to use an on-premise MTA, which is uh, a physical or a cloud-based server that you own. You download the instant software, you install it and you manage it. Yeah. The other way is to do it with a cloud service where somebody else has done that and somebody you're just else using their service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody So, an MTA is still an MTA whether you're using it in a cloud or uh, in your own system. Okay. But an MTA takes it from one place to another. We specialize in that on premise, you own it software, you de- you own it, you deploy it, you manage it, and you're responsible for it.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. And and Kumo specifically, open source.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: As I said, it was one of the things that, that really caught my attention. Now, just for background, both of you guys have like terrifically long history in the email space acquired by MessageBird in your case tom uh
1: yeah actually uh i i've been working in that space for i had been working in that space for about 15 16 years well mike actually pulled me into that world uh out of out of uh i I was a um i was a self-employed consultant for for a very long time doing uh exchange um and uh and send mail type implementations for for companies with the inbound uh, working on the outbound was a new experience uh, 15 years ago. Yeah. So, and then Mike. Don't know, Mike's fault. Socket Labs and what
2: else? So I uh, I go way back. So I actually started out in open source. So I did you okay? Um, actually, the first job I ever had out of school beyond the one that I met. So I met Tom at a previous job, and then I went off to work in open source. So I worked for MySQL, which is an open source database company. Sure. That one eventually got acquired by Sun, who got acquired by Oracle. Cool. Yeah. Um, just before it got acquired by Sun, I was recruited over to what at the time was Message Systems okay. because Message Systems, the founders, were very active in open source. And I met them because we were both speaking at open source conferences at OSCON and some other uh, some other events. And and in meeting with them, they said, Hey, you know, you're really good at explaining things in your conference sessions. Could you um could you come and do that for? for our um, other, uh, you know, for our other customers, right? For people yeah. who are trying to use the software for email. And I was able to say, sure, let's let's give that a go. And so I started yeah. off in uh, email in 2006, working for message systems that eventually became spark post that eventually got acquired by MessageBird. Right. Although I actually left before the message bird acquisition. I always leave just before the big acquisition. <laughs> that's my that's my right. system.
0: So um, you think I wasn't paying attention, but I'm going to hook back and say, did you ever end up getting calls from lawyers when there was the whole Oracle Sun or what's going to happen? No, well? I, well, was,
2: I was I <laughs> was asked at that point. So like I said, I left I left MySQL just before they got acquired by Sun and then I left MessageBird just before or I left SparkPost just before they got acquired by MessageBird. So I like okay. to just get out right before the acquisitions. But... Um, but with that, then I, I was there till 2018, went off and started a consulting company called Email Ninjas, worked with Socket Labs for a bit. And one of the things I, I saw, especially in the last couple of years, as I would, as I would talk to different ESPs, I've, I've worked with most of them at this point, just because a lot of them use message systems, SparkPost infrastructure. Sure. And, uh, and as I would talk to them about, you know, what they were looking at in the future with on-prem, the one answer I kept getting back was, you know, we're, we're kind of tired of the vendor relationship. And and with that, a lot of them were building their own MTA. They were like, you know what, we're just gonna, we're gonna make our own going forward, which is a very ambitious goal. That's
0: but a very goal.
2: I've seen that, I've seen multiple companies do it. And but that became very clear to me that they were looking for something other than the commercially licensed MTA with its changes in fees and terms and everything else. And the reality is, is that. I mean, this is the future of email, but the history of email is actually open source. Most I always I was took the words centers, out of my mouth. Yeah, absolutely. They started out in PostFix. They started out using SendMail, something along those Wines, lines. And then yeah. eventually when their volumes got high, that's when they moved to the original open source op- or the original commercial options, which was back in the day, there was Ironport. Um, then there was uh, Message Systems Momentum. There was Port25's MTA. They went to those options because open source was never built for, for sending at scale. It was built for, for smaller senders. And you'd go into some of these companies and they'd have like, I, I'd, I'd go into a place that had like a whole rack of PostFix servers. running. Yeah. And, and they had ingenious little scripts that would say, hey, PostFix can only send for one user at a time. So we're going to spin this one up as customer five, send their their campaign, spin it down, turn it into customer 13, send customer 13. Right. Like they, they do all of that. Because they didn't have the multi-tenant, the high volume, whatever. We went into that place, replaced it with two servers of Momentum back in the day, right? Like right. From, from a whole rack to two machines because open source wasn't doing what they needed. So that's that's where my history has been is, first of all, working in open source and databases, yeah. then placing a ton of it in email. It, and yes. now re- and now hopefully bringing open source back to large-scale senders. Would, would I be describing the
0: challenge that mta has to tackle at scale somewhat accurate if i said look when you start going to millions of messages billions of messages in some case out the door this sort of completely unpredictable handshake hi i've got this for you got this for you uh it's just a different engineering problem than s- sending one email message right and and all of the you know, monitoring, maintenance, performance to make all of that work. That's a non-trivial task. That's why my eyebrows went up and you said right there on MTA, like, whoa, not easy. What am I missing in that equation?
1: It is a very complicated situation. You know, the understanding how email works, it it takes a little bit. Doing doing, um, a single message, you know, you can follow that conversation. When you start sending hundreds of thousands of messages, that's also relatively easy to juggle when you get into the millions of messages or billions yeah you know there there are people out there sending billions of messages every single day sure you're starting to bend the laws of physics (laughs) so so you have to get really crafty about how you manage things like garbage collection and caches and Mm -hmm. and that stuff becomes really really important uh when you're going that fast uh so when you, it's really interesting to see people, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to build my own MTA. Well, yeah, the, you understand the concepts, but you don't really understand what happens when, you're, when you send it at light speed, you know, where you start going really, really, really fast, really strange things happen. So you have to yeah. look at things like, can you parallelize those things? Can you make things happen in a different concept? Not just having, you know, one of the, the big major uh, downfalls of, of some of those other systems is a single cue. So, for instance, postfix, you know, you've got a single queue. You can put mail into it, and you have to wait for that mail to go before you can send the next set of mail. Yeah. One of the things that we've done is we have fan that all out, so you don't just have one queue. A single campaign might end up having fifty or hundred or a thousand parallel Sweet. queues that all okay. split out the mail in a big fan, which is an interesting trick, but that actually adds more complication to the engineering part of it.
0: Wow. Okay. So yeah. I'm going to spin up a metaphor maybe it'll be useful in this conversation maybe not because i think we're going to get technical but um the i'm going to build my own mta and i'm not knocking someone who wants to tackle that but that's like i'm gonna i'm gonna build i'm gonna build a jalopy out in my garage you guys are dealing with traffic engineering for the interstate system which is a different problem than the car yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah i mean One of the, one of the, and it's interesting because this is not the first modern architecture, open source MTA that's, that's being developed. There's actually five or six really popular ones right now, but most of those projects and including actually a lot of MTAs that are built in general, they usually start out as a receiving tool. And so when you do receiving and you think about it, if I'm a receiving MTA. What I need to be able to do is accept a lot of connections from a lot of different places and be able to make decisions based on each connection, each message. Did this come from a trusted IP range? Does this message trigger any filters? All of that has to happen in parallel as far as the receiving side goes. And then once they're vetted and they're let in, they are put into a single queue because most MTAs, especially receiving side, just... Drop that message then into the, the mail server for IMAP, for, for whatever you use, Exchange, whatever that may be, where it then gets you know, looked at by the end user. And I know that that machine, outside of it failing, will accept every message I handed as quick as I can hand it to it, right? Okay. So I don't need a queue to pass onward because my one queue is just there in case that machine goes down. And if it's down, then I'm not trying anything. And as soon as it's back up again, I just dump it all into the IMAP box, right into the mailbox, sir. Yeah,
0: yes. That's
2: it. That's a, that's a sending MTA. That's why even though there's been several popular um, open source MTA projects, they're still not seeing any use by email service providers or large senders because that, that's not the problem they're trying to solve. Um, when, it, when it comes to queue management, it really is the make or break of a high volume service you know, for sending. And you think about it like, like an airport, right? If you had an airport, if you were running, I live in Atlanta, if you were running Hartsfield and it had one X-ray machine, one queue to stand in in order to to get your mail checked, it would be a nightmare. It's already not exactly great getting in line for security at at Hartsfield as it is. But what if there was only one X-ray machine, right? What we have instead is the ability to say, you know, we don't just have a line and, and it's like airlines. We don't just have a Delta line. We don't just have a line specifically for, you know, whether it's, it's going to this place or that place. We have the equivalent of saying, we actually have for every airline, for every city they go to, we have a separate security line. So if you're on Delta to Atlanta or in, well, you're in Atlanta. If you're on Delta to Orlando, that's one security line. If you're on Delta to New York, that's a different security line. If you're on American Airlines to Orlando, that's a separate security line. And that means that no two passengers Going to Orlando through those two airlines are standing in the same line. If, if American Airlines slows down, the Delta passengers can still get through the line to Orlando. If Delta slowed down to New York, that doesn't affect Delta to Orlando, right? That kind of queue management is what makes a solution like this effective at an extreme scale is because we never queue two messages to the same destination from the same channel. Into the same queue, so slowdowns never become a problem, as far as that goes.
0: So you, you, unlike a receiving MTA, if I'm understanding what you just explained correctly, you've sort of got a m- multiplex queue problem, right? Queues in as well as queues out that you've you've yes. figured out how to manage. Wow, that's yeah. uh, that's hardcore.
2: Um, yeah. Queues in is it actually the thing. Queues in is actually about being able to do um, a large number of parallel connections across a large number of threads, uh, all running on separate schedulers. Yeah. That's what a good receiving MTA needs is very multi-threaded connection handling on the inbound. Mm-hmm. And then an outgoing MTA still needs that because there's a lot to manage, yeah. but it's the queues that make it on the outbound. So, an, yeah. so a good sending server has to be capable of both.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Even though it'd be very hard to draw, on, <laughs> draw
2: on screen. Um,
0: slightly different question, but entirely related. How did Kumo come together first? Like, mm-hmm. you've got multiple people with a heck of a lot of experience involved. This didn't just happen over, you know, one frosty malt beverage. How did this? How did this start coming together?
2: Oh, well, this is the virtual age. It happened over no beverages at all. It was all um, online. Um you know, so, so yeah. know, this comes. So this comes back. Um, actually, it's one of those. It's one of those things where you know because of what the industry looked like last year, and especially what happened in the industry. So I started out. Um, first of all, I worked with the two co-founders. So so like like Tom said, I brought him in at Message Systems because I wanted an additional person to help me out, and I knew Tom was the guy. And then um, and then Wes, our engineering co-founder was the chief architect of the Momentum MTA product at Message Systems when I joined. So I knew Wes from the very start of my career. And then I think it was two years later, I brought Tom in and then Tom knew Wes as well. So that's where we all knew each other from. And here's the thing, when you start something when you're older, you get an advantage that like, you know, you hear all these stories about startups and they're all 20 something and, and they've got incredible creativity and energy, and and they come up with things that you just would never have imagined. But you're really, when you start something up in your middle age, you're on like easy mode, you get certain cheat codes. And one of them is, I don't have to, like, you'll see all these things on LinkedIn, how to find a good folk co-founder. You need this and this and this and a good co-founder, and you better get it right early on because have these agreements in place, or you wait till you're 45 and you know all the best people and you just go straight to the best people because they're also your friends, right? And so that was essentially how that all came about. And Wes had gone from message systems to Facebook where he built some of the extreme scalability components over there for various things that they work on. And uh, he was getting to the point where he's like, all right, I've done my Facebook time. I want to try something different. And I knew that because I talked to him and I'm like, why not try this? And then Tom, I was like, we need the perfect customer success person they need to understand how to explain all this to customers keep them all happy keep them all taken care of that's what tom's been doing for years at spark post um then message bird and so yeah you bring together uh, you bring together three people who all know each other well and all have their own piece of the pie that they contribute and, and like i said it's almost like cheating because we just didn't have to do this whole search of co-founders and everything else well if i if
0: yeah. i had a frosty Malt beverage i would raise it and touch you cuz i couldn't agree more <laughs> about the the sort of Cheat codes of having having some experience when you start a new thing, experience in relationships when you start a new yeah. thing. Like
2: yeah. it, re- it really is a
0: different ball game. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it is a different it, ball game.
1: It, it was kind of a, a, an interesting perfect storm, you know, where all, the three of us had worked together. We know each other quite well. We worked very well together when we worked together, and then we all found ourselves, you know, temporarily unemployed, um, and, and and literally just ended up having a conversation. To, over a frosty beverage and, 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 the idea just kind of percolated as part of a side conversation, you know, how would you do things differently if you could do it again, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And oh, honestly, I thought we were, you know, we were just having a really interesting conversation as old friends, uh, yeah. that, that had the time to talk, never really thought about it at the beginning, turning into a business and then things just kind of percolated and it's like, Hey, this is actually a really cool thing. This could actually go somewhere. And that, and that, you know, organically grew with three people that are, I I couldn't think of a better way to, to have three co-founders come together as people that already knew each other and had a common goal and common philosophy to start with.
0: And, and common, some, a lot of commonality in the map of relationships and knowledge since you both, since you all three worked in a lot of overlapping industries and worked together in overlapping industries. And we could, we could go on and on about how the email space is kind of particularly interesting and connected. But yeah. if we get there, tell me about the decision to make this an open source project. Mike, you said you spent a bunch of time in open source, but that didn't mean you had to, had to go there with this.
2: It, it, it more meant that I knew the answer to the, to the problem that I actually encountered. So um, I've always been what I like to call Mr. Ombrette. So I, I've always done on-prem email and on-prem can mean server in a colo. It can mean I have a server in AWS. It means I'm not using SaaS, right? And, and as I would, as I would, you know, stay in the industry and talk to people, I I talked to a couple of CEOs at some of the larger ESPs and I'm like, you know, are you interested in looking at another, uh, you know, another vendor MTA to, um, to work with? And the answer was, we don't want to start another relationship like that. Like some of these companies have been very long-term with a commercial vendor and they've seen, you know, changes from a perpetual license to a volume-based license to a tier-based license, annual license, all these things keep happening. And they're like, we don't want to start over with that. We don't want to go to another vendor, start another relationship where everything seems great, but then lo and behold, over time, the, the terms change and they, they, they wind up feeling held hostage because if they stop paying the, the the annual fees that they're that they're obligated to, well, then the servers just shut off, right? right. And they said, so we, you know, a, half of them would say like, we're going to stick to the devil we know because even though they, you know, we've had all these changes and, you know, the well, what's the old Star Wars quote? I've changed the agreement, pray I don't change it further kind of thing, right? They're like, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> we can't stop paying or our servers turn off and we don't want to start the cycle somewhere else. So this is yeah. the devil we know we're going to stick with it. Okay. Plus, changing out an NTA is a huge yeah. undertaking. And then some yeah. of them would say, well, we're gonna build our own, right? Which is also a huge undertaking. Yeah. Um, but they, at least at the end of that undertaking, theoretically own an MTA that will never have their license terms changed underneath them, will never, you know, be, be subject to, you know, all they have to do is maintain a, a team that knows the product. Um, there's risks there, stuff tends to, I mean, for a large ESP, my customer facing stuff is what's important. My, my stuff under the hood, will only get updated after that if if there's something critical. And so those teams tend to get reassigned to do other stuff. And yeah. it kind of goes into not shelfware, but it, it doesn't get iterated on. Like yeah. it happens all the time. Like there's there's orgs I've seen that, you know, say, hey, we're going to use it. We're going to build our own WYSIWYG editor for our emails. Others say we're going to use B-free, right? Or B.io. And the ones that use B have an org that is constantly improving that WYSIWYG editor. Yeah. The ones that don't have to have a lot more diligence to make sure they keep improving because it's really tempting to say, and it's working and let's work on something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's that's the risk of the ones that try to build their own, assuming they have the skill set to do it in the first place. So with all that, though, what I understood was having come from open source, like at MySQL, it is a commercial open source company. The whole idea of that organization is we're creating an open source MTA and we know that people are going to use it. It got paired up with PHP, became the most popular database for quite a while there. Sure. Um, and 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 they knew that certain CTOs would show up and go, hey, what happens if that breaks? Well, we go to the forum, we go to the chat, we try to figure out an answer. He's like, that's not going to work. We need to know that there's a throat to choke. We need to know there's someone we can phone. And yeah. that's how MySQL got its business, was yeah. selling support to yeah. to yeah. companies that want to use it, but need to have the insurance of I can phone support and, and have this problem fixed. And so I knew that that model was exactly what I was hearing from these CEOs of these ESPs was they weren't saying it because they weren't thinking of that, right? But they were saying essentially, I, I want I want an a, a infrastructure that I'm not held hostage by. I want to know that I, can, that I can use it, that if I don't like the license terms, that I can stop paying and that it's going to keep running, that i am never held captive by, by that vendor. And that's what open source as a company allows us to do is to say, here it is, here's the source code. If anything goes wrong, if we're all hit by buses, there it is. You can continue moving forward with it. If you decide you don't want to pay us support, you never have to start. If you and we have to burn your business every year. If you don't like what we're doing for you, there's nothing keeping you from stopping paying for support. Because all you lose out on is the ability to contact us for support. The software is going to keep right on working, right? And, and the best part is, like, Tom, I think, was around even in the early days when this was the case. But when we were selling, you know, commercial MTA message systems and it was a smaller company, we'd get clients who would say, I'm going to need code escrow. Because the whole idea was you're a little company. You may make it. I hope you do. You yeah. may not. They need to know that if you fail... Yeah that I don't lose use of this software. And so there was escrow agreements in most of those early early customer contracts to say, we keep pushing the code to a third-party organization. If we ever go under, that yeah. code gets released to those customers. Yeah. We just skip the middleman and just release it immediately, um, which not only means nobody's worried about the risk of us going under, that they won't have access to the code, but it also is very transparent for security. Yeah. If you're worried about how this is implemented, if you're worried that there might be things, take, our public code and and get somebody to do an audit of it. Feel free, you know, it's there. It's it's wide open for you. Would
0: it be would it be a fair broad strokes uh, statement to say that adopting an open source model like what you've described, Kumu, MySQL, whatever, requires enough expertise on the on the customer side, the one who's not paying for licensing maybe paying for a, a throat to choke they've got to. you said read the code it, like, they got to know how to do that to get the benefit out of that don't they
1: you know that raises the the other thing i was i was thinking about while mike was talking about this from a customer success point of view mm-hmm. it it lends to this very very nicely i've been running customer success and solutions engineering teams for a very long time mm-hmm. um and one of the things that always gets in the way, more so in the last three to four years, has been the licensing conversation. You know, a customer success person is just trying to help the customer be successful yeah. and then licensing things. So, well, my, my license comes up or should we deal with the renewal or, you know, make sure that you pay your bill so that we can actually help you out more. I just want to help you. It, I want yeah. to help you be successful. I want to build a solution and help you get your messages out and, and not have that problem. But I've got this licensing thing in the way I have to have to worry, worry about from a customer success point of view, not having any licensing to worry about is a gold mine because now I can actually just help the customer. And now it's a conversation about support as opposed to licensing a piece of software. So now one of the things that we have been doing with, with the, the, the current customers is um, helping them actually get deployments, actually building implementations for them Mm -hmm. and, and wrapping support and professional services around that. That's really our whole model. You can have the software for free and you have access to the code anytime you want. But if you really want to be successful, you'd be crazy to do that without a support agreement or somebody to reach out to for help. It's not just about having a throat to choke. Oh, that's a, that's a really important piece at two o'clock in the morning when everything breaks.
0: Um,
1: but when you've got a new idea and you just want to bounce something off, I want to have a piece of code that I just want to test. If you're paying for licensing, there's always that nagging feeling that oh, they're going to up, uh, they're inc- increase my fees or it's, they're going to they're going to charge me extra for this. When it's all wrapped into a support agreement, it allows their solutions and customer success people to just help the customer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm a, I'm a yeah. huge fan of open source. I think it's one of the most uh, intellectually, and I don't mean this word the way I'm gonna say it, po- politically, ecopolitically uh, eco-politically significant um things in the last thirty years. Like it's astonishing what it's enabled. But it's not necessarily it's not necessarily yeah. for the faint of heart, and with the skill set that no. you guys pulled together at the table that became Kumo, um, saying let's go that direction. I don't know if you've done it if you hadn't had experience doing it in the
2: past. So one of the interesting things to me and and something to keep in mind with this is that our initial target customer is literally an email service provider an organization where there are people dedicated to mail ops to running running the servers keeping them configured often there's an overlap of deliverability sometimes there's not some some of these large esps have a deliverability team and a mail ops team and mail ops is about keeping the servers going deliverability is about tuning and, and everything else but um One of the things that we didn't expect early on, like you, first of all, you have to have a unicorn developer. Wes is is absolutely incredible. He, like I said, he's built some of the key components to keep Facebook fast and running, right? And so now, and this is the third time he's built an MTA actually. So it's not even like that's new to him. Um, And because of that, one of my initial expectations was that, yes, it's open source, but we I was like, but we're doing this as a company, and we're not expecting initial contributions. Like this isn't yet a community project. This okay, is a it's commercial community. product okay. that is open source. Yes. Uh, the, the unexpected surprise for me, the pleasant surprise was we've already had of the of of our customers and the evaluators. We've already had four outside individuals who have contributed code. So, as an example, we had um, we had somebody who's who's working on our software um, who was testing out, and they're like, we. Uh, Our initial implementation of DKM signing didn't expose settings for what's called canonicalization for headers headers. and for the body of the message. Uh, We we figured, you know, most people are just going to want to use the standard, relaxed relaxed, So we're just going to deploy that for now. Next thing you know, we get a pull request into our repo saying, here's a block of code. I want to be able to to do header and body canonicalization differently than what the default is. And they wrote code, they wrote the modifications to our code to make that available to them in their config and then submitted it to us. And Wes gives it a little feedback. We do a couple of tweaks and it goes. So that's Uh the other amazing thing is like with open source and especially in this case, rather than saying, hey, I need this. When can it be on the roadmap, especially if it's a little change like that actually was. Yeah. I don't have to say, hey, I need this. When's it going to be on the roadmap? I This person modified their copy. To do it, yeah. and then sent us the um, the code modification so that we could, you know, at our choice, incorporate it into the into the official mainline release, which we did. Yeah. Um, and so they got what they needed immediately, and then we were able to take that contribution and make it better for everyone as a result. Yeah. So that's the other beauty of it is that people don't have to be like, "Hey, I really need this. When can it be on the roadmap?" If they want to, they can actually. I mean, we're always happy to do. We, we're happy to do paid mods again. You know, yeah. we're not charging licenses, so we make our money where we can, which is professional services. Sure, but um, but they don't have to wait for us. They can they can you know make that contribution themselves, keep it for themselves if they want to, or push it back to us to to incorporate into the into the larger release.
0: Into the into wow, that's uh, that's terrific. Do you mind if I ask what like what the sort of st- stack underneath is? Language, uh, data storage, and so on. Like because writing it writing it especially for the third time you You've got a unicorn developer going, "I'm gonna use this to tackle mm-hmm. this big problem like what what are the key pieces?
1: Uh, it's all rust and lua, so um That's interesting Rust is um it's like a better version of C. <laughs> like it's what it's what it should have been um it, it's it's incredibly fast it's it's uh very malleable if you know how to how to deal with it. Um, it, it manages the hardware very, very, very well. And then on top of that, from a configuration point of view, we use Lua. Lua is, um, it's, it's, it's unfortunately people don't know a whole lot about Lua, but it's a fantastic language. It's, it reads almost like English. It's, if you, if you ever learned basic when you were in high school, it's, it's so incredibly simple to, to write Lua. But it also has the power of, of directly um, uh, working with at, at the sea level So Lua and Rust work really, really well together. You never have to touch the Rust. It's the basic engine that goes okay. very, 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 very fast. Okay. Lua allows you to do the configuration. And we intentionally didn't write a static config. Yeah. We did the whole thing in Lua. So yeah. you have total control over how you manage the message as it comes in. which adds some complications for us from a support point of view because there isn't a standard config yeah Yeah. Yeah. the the config is literally i i posted it earlier in a you know post on linkedin the config is about three lines of lua you know start a listener and send the mail um
0: i'm not familiar with lua but in my in my understanding this accurately that it, it gives you a smart when people ask for scriptability or a script, they like, I want to do programmatic stuff. It doesn't mean I want to undo the engine that's running it, but I want to get beyond, I've got to do it that way, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. you can do so, things like okay. if-then-else if, if conditions. You can do you, okay. you yeah. looping, yeah. you can do yeah. iterations. Um, yeah. You can oh, reach cool. out to databases and pull things back in. Yeah. So something I just published this morning is, you know the ability to say, okay, if this message has this username, go out to the database, pull yeah. this back. Yeah. See whether or not it validates. Then if it's authenticated, then go ahead and send it. Before you do that, strip all these headers out because they don't want that going out to the public. And then sign it with Lua and do it in this order. All that millions of messages an hour. And you can do that. Lua allows you to expose just, you know, 10 lines of instructions. Mm -hmm. If this, then that. And you don't have to worry about the thousand lines of rust yeah. underneath it yeah. that's actually doing the heavy lifting yeah
0: oh that's cool that's boy that no i no wonder people are going to start bang down the door already the mod <laughs> you talked
2: about earlier mike was that done in lua so so yeah so what happens the, the i will say one more nice thing about rust is it's all memory safe out of the box yes. and yes. it has so many built-in capabilities like just as a quick little anecdote with um with momentum which was message systems it was c plus plus and it was lua as a scripting language but not a config language just just to to draw a line there so oh your configs were still text files in the text file you could say at this point in the flow i want to call this lua script and run it and then get back to it but you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't configure it using lua um, but but ru- like one of the biggest changes that happened in momentum during my tenure there was it was a scheduler based approach which is i'm not even gonna deep explain it but instead of having a thread for every connection it has a thread that is constantly watching everything that goes on and acting on everything, and it uses extra threads to do like the slow work. Um, when when the number of cores, like when there was only two cores in a server, best ideal approach. As there were more and more cores in in a server, it it was not as ideal as multi-threaded. And so Wes, one of Wes's largest projects, was changing that scheduler approach to be multi-threaded schedulers, where there's multiple schedulers watching different areas. And, and reacting to all the different events, it made it incredibly scalable, over 10 million messages an hour in some circumstances per <laughs> box. Um, when he went to Rust, which he did back at, uh, again, he did that back at, at Facebook, he, he became a big Rust advocate partway through, mm-hmm. um, and he was teaching people how to use Rust, and they were migrating a lot of what they did to Rust over at Facebook. But when he comes here to do that MTA, to do Como MTA, multi-threaded scheduling is just a Crate, it's an already existing feature and he just plugged it in and DKIM signing was a feature and he plugged it in. It wasn't complete. He did submit some contributions back to that project, but a lot of what he did was just grabbing these crates that are already pre-built and, and gluing them together with code. So instead of building it all from the ground up, I mean, there's a reason why we've only been at it since February and we're pretty much code complete is because Rust adds all these capabilities that used to be hand-coded in C. So with with Lua, though. Yeah, I mean the benefit is the heavy lifting's in Rust, the the telling it what to do and how to do it is in is in Lua. And when somebody wants an integration, like for example, saying, hey, I want to I want to validate, like Tom said, I want to validate auth off of off of uh, a data source like SQLite, yeah. normally that's a config file and then call Lua here and then do Lua. Our config file is a script. So yeah. if somebody says, hey, um, like normally most of these ESPs they're using PowerMTA, they're using Momentum, what have you, text config files, and they write little scripts that, that take a data source with their DKIM signing, and they write a file in the format and they place it in the right place and they tell the server to reload the file and the server reloads the file. And now I know the newest rules for, for signing DKIM. With us, we write a little script that says, when it comes time to do a DKIM signature, this is where it is in SQLite. Go ask it, okay. and then do the signature, okay. and that's it. There's no there's no static text file that needs to be updated. Yeah, it just asks the server, right? And so with Momentum and even Power NTA, one of our challenges used to be, well, I've got to allocate enough memory space because I've got to take. Let's say I've got four thousand IPs I'm signing for, and five thousand customers per <laughs> and all these different throttles. Yeah. yeah, there were customers so big we had to increase the memory limits of the of the config store in memory yes. to fit it all. Yes. These files would get to be yes. hundreds of megs even. With this approach, we don't store the config in memory. We're actually saying at the moment you need to know what DKIM signature to use, go ask. I'll and run then your Lua script for a minute right? in case you're signing a lot in Lua, right? Yeah. And then go cache that information in case we need to do that signature a thousand times or whatever, because it's a big ca- yeah. you know, campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And then forget about it until the next time you need to know that scenario. Okay. right what ip should i use most of the time you pre you predefine all the ips you have to schedule the reloads because you yeah. gotta bounce the server to reload all the data here we're saying hey if a tenant comes in yeah. that you haven't seen before ask the data source and then cache that info and what ip does go out of ask the data source the data which answer, could yeah. be a file it could be yeah. a text file on the disk you don't have to stop using text files but now the text file isn't a config file it's a data source that's being queried. Yeah. yeah, right? you could, it's now you're a handling your database. You're handling yeah. your so even, instructions. Yeah. And so now everything is just loaded as it's needed. We don't have a server, we don't have a config reload command because we're constantly reading what we yeah. need to know when we need to know.
0: It. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Five yeah. minute hookback question <laughs> for my two minutes of looking at Rust. Crate is sort of the equivalent of library. rust land effectively yeah okay 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 that's 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 what i thought wow wow that's a that's a powerful combo
1: you know mike actually hit on something that's actually a fairly major problem a hidden under underlying problem in in this industry for for mail ops people uh that that isn't really well known i don't think in that in that all of the major um mtas have to do this reload and reloads are a pain yeah. So you make a configuration. Check. Marketing wants something slightly different, or you've got a new key that you have to add. Yeah. You have to make that change in your config, and then you have to reload the server. Yeah. Which now means empty the queue, right? Well, not only that, but if there... what if you have forty servers, right, in <laughs> three right. different data centers, <laughs> right? But well, you got to—it's—it's it's an engineering problem in itself. Yes. Just reloading all yes. of that. Yes. Qmail MTA is cluster aware and you can actually have centralized management. And you don't have to do any of those reloads because it's just reading data when it's needed. So all you have to do is update the backend data what? and keep on going. There's what? no reloads, there's no waiting, there's no requeuing, queuing there's no dumping stuff back out into the wild and, and having possible deliverability issues because you've now you've pushed all that queue back out again when you didn't want to. Yeah, You don't have to wait for those, you don't have to wait for a whole bunch of maintenance windows to make changes to your config it just makes life so much easier from a from a management point of view for an for a mail ops engineer
0: yeah yeah and and much more uh, a devops way of running the mta as as opposed to stop wait reboot new config got exactly. it
2: not make a typo in the config file right right and <laughs> honestly that devops mail op approach is yeah. is Also, core to what we're doing, like Kumo is, by the way, Japanese for the word cloud. So we, right from the beginning, wanted to know that this was going to be cloud friendly um, because everybody wants to move to their own cloud, right? Like they they want to use, they don't necessarily want a cloud, like as in a third party SaaS vendor that does their email relay, but they want their servers in their own cloud. And sometimes they want to take some of their traffic and send it off through somebody else's cloud service and we support that. But from the mail ops perspective, like historically, the MTA has been a black box, right? It's you set it up, put the config file in, you inject the message in over SMTP. Maybe it's got an API or something. And then you've got a log file that you read for what happens on the other side. And it's been an integrated element of an environment. Even when you integrate, well, how do we integrate it? Well, you're going to write these include files to this location from whatever data source you have using a Perl script and then tell the server to reload it. And then here's how you read the logs. And, you know, if you want to get to close real time, you read them on a regular basis. And there's been advances in some of the commercial tools, especially since I left, because I wrote some of that roadmap before I left, never saw it see fruition. But um, that's not how it works anymore. People want APIs to talk to servers. They don't want to sit there and command lines. We used to do, we used to set up for people where we'd have cron jobs run a command line that would then do something to the server on a regular basis, or we'd have a little script that would catch a hook and use it to issue a command line and send it back as a response, like all that. Um, so they are getting better at implementing management APIs and injection APIs. And, but the modern thing is, well, we don't want, you know, logs anymore. I need a web book. I need a, I need to get this data back in real time to the rest of my environment. So now we're looking and saying, okay, and this again, we also cheated in the sense of, we didn't have to have a product team go out and do a whole bunch of research because we've been doing this for so long that we know what we would do better the next time. Yeah. And so it's like, this time right out of the gate, it's gotta have webhooks. It's gotta, you know, push data out over AMQP. It's gotta take injection over an API. It's gotta be managed okay. over an API, okay. right? Like we don't, we have a command line thing. All it does is call the API. It doesn't yeah. do anything directly. It's I just see. there to yeah. call the yeah. API on your behalf. Yeah. Like we we knew that this time around, it had to be an integrated part of an environment, not, not a black box that you talk to in a specific way. So that's why, you know, Lua lets it reach, it can take its config from any data source and and just use it directly. It can take API. Uh, I think we're putting Kafka for sending out uh, log entries next because somebody asked for that. But like, you know, AMQP was a big one. They want that real time data coming out of the server Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, to as many different destinations. We had a one thing we didn't expect this early on is like we knew people would want webhooks and somebody's like, I need a webhook for each tenant. So I need each tenant to get a webhook with their information to their webhook endpoint. And we're like, oh, yeah, I can see why you'd want yes, that. Yeah, and yeah. then we did it in Lua. It We didn't modify the Rust code because the Lua was capable of doing that, right? Yes. So it's like, all right, well, here's a Lua script that's going to do that. That's that's the beauty of like config as code is. Like Tom and I used to love momentum because it's like we didn't have to know the use cases in advance to make them happen,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and even then we were writing config files and then bits of Lua. Here we're like, we really don't need to know the use cases in advance for most wow. things because it's all a Lua scripting on top of that Rust, so it's fast and it's flexible at the same time. Because okay, yeah. you can never predict what somebody's going to do when you hand them a toolbox, right? No, this is like this. Is,
0: this is actually a fascinating conversation on a bunch of levels. I. Did want to ask you about something you just gave me the opening to ask about it um kumo japanese for cloud and you were planning from the get go for you know cloud implementations whatever that means you look at the decision that uh, i think it was elastic db made a year year and a half back about changing terms because basically they felt like aws was taking them for a ride did you guys have conversations about that and have you
2: grappled with it
1: yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we've had so, licensing conversations for sure. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
2: there's, um, yeah. So one of the things this actually ties into another another area. We there, there's been an example. There's been multiple examples over time of companies that started out with open source and then changed their license. Mostly they change it to be like, all right, well, if you compete with us, you can't use the open source, or if you host it, or what have you. Um, because of that. But if you look deeper what you almost always see under the hood of all of those companies that make those decisions is investors. There's VC money, there's ROI. Like one of the things that we wanted to get away from is ROI. We wanted to get away from this idea. Well, not ROI, we, we want ROI, but hockey sticks, right? Like every time, like every time I've worked for a company that has VC money or has back backing by investors, everybody keeps saying hockey stick, hockey stick, hockey stick. Tom and I agreed early on, the only time we want to ever say hockey stick, how the Calgary Flames are doing and whether or not Atlanta's gonna get a team for a third time so I can watch in person again. That's it. Unless we're talking hockey, you no know, hockey stick. But the idea is that these, these when you have that investor money, you have this pressure to You've gotta you've gotta increase revenue. You gotta find new TANS. So you wind up with products being introduced that don't necessarily benefit the customer, decisions being made that don't benefit the customer. And it all comes because there's this, you know, there's this demand for that return from the investors. Yeah. We we agreed and we did not, we are not taking investor money because we don't have an exit plan, right? We're not here to to sell this to someone. We're not here to go public. This is this is a good little little market to work in, but it's not big enough to be a public company in. And, and getting acquired is never good for the customer in the long term, right? Then whoever acquires you is there to find a way to get more money out of it than, they, than you were getting out of it so that they can get that investment back. So yeah. most of those decisions that you see are yeah. based on that concept of we need to get a bigger return. The other thing is, we're never going to um, we're never gonna have that Amazon concern because we also have no desire to be a cloud relay provider, right? Like we're not, we're not looking to, because then you have to have, well, first of all, you have to have investors to be successful because you got to market it like crazy. You got to have sales teams because you're going after individual you know, cloud users. Um, and then you have to have compliance teams and deliverability teams because now you're hosting it. Now you're providing it. You got to manage all the IPs, all the servers, all of that. We're a software company. We're here to provide this out for people to use, to build those things for themselves. And that's great. If they want to go and they want to, you know, send them to run for their money with our software, by yeah. all means, go for it. But we're not here to build that kind of a business. And so we're not worried if Amazon were to take it and, and use it to run SES, yeah. because we were never planning to introduce our own SES in the first place. Like, gotcha. like you were, um core, right? Oh, Amazon's taking it, and they're hosting it for us or for people and now they're taking profits and we're, we're you know now they're not using our hosted version because they're using Amazon's. Yeah, we're not doing it in the first place. So you the only way to compete with us would be to build an MTA and try to sell support for it. Right. And we well, took ours and tried to sell it we'd like supporting it, right? Like look, nobody's gonna go to you for support when they can go to us. So the thing that we do we're not expecting anyone to compete with and yeah. and using our using our code so we just aren't worried about that particular scenario really Interesting. because we don't Interesting. have you no, know we don't have investors saying find more revenue
0: yeah yeah um my my sense is that the um the clients of open source who build derived businesses by adding something to that mix whether it's you know cloud hosting or something like that they they seem to have learned the lesson that They've got to. They've got to, in some way, stay connected with the source of the source for everyone to stay healthy, viable, et cetera, In the long run. I mean, you look at the big, the big cloud players, and I think Microsoft particularly has had a, a major heart <laughs> heart transplant on in this front. Like, they're they're quite pro and in, in quite supportive of open source broadly speaking because they can't afford not to be. P.S. They're all running on Linux boxes too, so.
1: that's a relatively recent change in the life of microsoft as well and i think that is i think that is an indication that that we're i want to say we're in in at the beginning of a revolution but i think we're kind of in the middle of it and it's being kind of quiet um you know there's a ton of companies out there running on open source and and they don't even know it (laughs) (laughs) uh, how, how many docker containers are out there and people think that they actually own that it's like no, yeah. you're actually yeah. running on open source right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got, <laughs> and,
0: you've got
2: audits to make sure you have some freaking idea whether or not you are. Right. What are you say, Mike? Oh, I, well, I was also going to say, like, support for us is a product, but support is both ways. Like, like, I've had people say, well, what if we only wind up, like, they're like, well, we only call our current vendor, like, twice a year at most well, should we even be paying support? And the answer is, well, it's support in two ways, right? It's yes, you have our support to use the product and yes, it's going to be very stable. So once it's up and configured and running, odds are you're not going to call us with a set, one issue because it's just not going to break like that. Um, But the other is to say, well, support support also means you're supporting this team, right? If you build your own MTA, you would pay salaries for people to constantly, well, first to build it and then to keep building because you would never run the risk of, of oh, having an un, you know unmaintained app in the middle of, I mean, they're email service providers. The word is email. They are like, it's amazing how many people don't realize. You'll, you'll, I'll walk into an office of a big ESP and I'll cast like 50 designers and then 30 copywriters and then you know 20 marketers and a whole wing of salespeople going to the basement where there's two guys that are running all the MTAs and anyone else in this building can, can get sick. But if the servers go down, the whole business stops. Like half the, half the graphic artists can be out if it's a full-service shop yeah. or the support people can be gone and yeah. it's still not the end of the world. There's only one or two guys at the bottom that are running the servers that actually yeah. make that whole business tick. And so part of it is that, yeah, they're going to support open source because the great thing is is that our users want us to succeed, right? Yeah. They want us to keep doing this and keep making it better and keep going. Yeah. And so part of paying support is also just a commitment to say, our business depends on this thing. And that means we depend on these. I mean, yes, it's nice to know there's source code out there. But the reality is we need these guys to continue to, to do this thing and to build out more people to help us with it and, and to make sure that that organization continues to do that. Yeah. indefinitely, Which is our whole plan yeah. because we depend on that piece of software more than anything else to keep our business going. Yeah, like, yeah. that's a big trust they put on us, but they also understand that for that to work, you know, yes, they have the option to use it for free, and a lot of people do. Um, but it's it's the, and some of them don't, like, I mean, if a guy's running a website and he needs a mail server, the mail server isn't critical to his whole business. But if you're an email service provider, your whole organization counts on this, so What's throwing some support money at? And we, we tell people, like, look, take what you pay for support now to your current vendor and we'll take that. We don't, we don't need to depend, spend new money. There's no new license fees. Just take your existing spend, move it over. Yeah. And, and in return, this thing keeps going. And their software that they're going to be depending on continues to be evolved and improved because this is all we do. We're not... You know, even if you build it yourself, okay, how long can you keep your bonus there before it's working good enough? Then you, you move those people to something else, keep one guy there just to keep an eye on it. Here, this is all And yeah. so for that money, you get to keep three, you know, three and eventually more people just, just doing this one thing.
0: Awesome. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock on the top right here. And I, cause I don't want to use up your time. We should probably think about wrapping, but I wanted to ask you how, what the, the state of the business of kumo mta is. Are you guys happy with where you are? Uh, what are the Im- immediate steps you want to see in terms of growth and reaching more customers? Like how are things looking? Yeah,
1: you know, for, uh, I, I have to tell you. You know, you touched on this a little bit about the the concepts of going into open source and selling all of that. Um, I, I I did have some fear and trepidation at the very beginning of this whole conversation. Not this one, but you know, the the conversation about Kumo. Um, and, uh, and as we talked through it, uh, the, the idea of trying to sell open source software grew on me. And I started thinking about all the amazing possibilities that were there, but I was thinking we would work on some foundation for a year and maybe June or July in 2024, we'd be able to launch a product and, and be able to, you know, get out into the community. And I, I was amazed when. You know, like Mike said, we kind of started this in, in the conversation in February. We actually had production install running in July. And that was a, oh, that was oh, an ow. moment for me to think like, we actually have something really special yeah. here. Yeah. And we've got, it's not just a piece of software. It's a whole community that we're building and they're contributing to this. And, and it's like, um, I couldn't have dreamed of a better collaboration or a better um, uh, way that this has all flowed together. I'm I'm super excited about where we are right now. And I'm I'm having a hard time actually thinking where we're going to be in three months because we've kind of done everything we planned on doing. I thought we would be here a year from now. And and we're well past where I thought we would be even, even a year from now. So I'm very excited about where the future is and how we can help the community grow and help, uh, um, mail-offs people get, you know, better quality of life <laughs> you know, be, be, better you tools guys to work out of the
0: basement. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: and, um, I'm, I'm super excited. I, I love our partnership. I think we work really well together and I love the community that we're, we're helping to build.
2: That's really yeah, And, and even, um, yeah, everything exceeded. Like we went to Mog for the, uh, you know, for the first, well, not first time, for the first yeah. time as Kumo MTA. Yeah. yeah um you know, in in last month in in Brooklyn. And um, we had like four or five conversations lined up and we thought, okay, that's pretty good. Maybe we can talk to a couple more while we're there. We wound up talking to like, well, 13 different organizations and half of those additional conversations were people telling other people, go talk to those guys. And that is not something we were expecting, uh, you know, that early out of the gate. I mean, it's, it like I mean, it, it feels like if somebody said, hey, if, if anyone ever asked me for business advice, we'd be like, do not try to use this as an example. Um, because, you know, you, again, you read your LinkedIn, find your ICP, work on it, you know, do experiments. It's like, no, we knew our, IC, like our ICP was so down that every time I talk to someone and I say, look, imagine a high performance sending MTA, but it's open source. Everybody's just like, I'm in, right? That's it. I'm in. Yeah. It, the yeah. only challenge we have is making sure people hear about it. And even that's actually been a lot easier than we were expecting. Because again, turns out word of mouth is, is way better than we would have thought for something like, and it doesn't hurt that we know absolutely everyone in the industry at this point almost, but like word of mouth was not something I was expecting so early on for people you to know, say, Hey, those guys, that was not part of the plan. And, and yet here we are. So that's, that's been like, like Tom said, I think that's the most amazing thing is like, we had no idea we were going to be here this quickly either. I didn't think we build it that quickly in the first place, but it yeah. turns out was rust is very, is perfect for this. And, and on top of that, we didn't expect, you know, this much uptake, yeah. but yeah, when I talked to the original people, it's true. They're like, I don't want another vendor relationship like this. And they don't, but they don't want to build their own. And so here we are. So
0: my parting thought is I really want to talk to you guys again in about a year. Like, this is such a great story. It's been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you both, uh, you know, sharing it and, and kind of unfolding the thinking behind it. I don't think it's as accidental. I don't think the velocity you've got is as accidental as it may feel. I
2: think that's all uh-huh. be your cheat codes, Mike. <laughs> I, I told somebody, I told somebody, this is a overnight success. Seventeen yeah. years in the making. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, we should wrap. My guests have been Tom Ayers and Mike Hillier of KumoMTA.com. Correct, Mike? Correct. Correct. Thanks again, gents. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great. Thank you.